Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, wounded healers. So, I mean, there's still stuff going on in the world, right? And I wanted to share with you something that I've been recognizing in my own personal life and how interesting and, I mean, unfortunate it is that it's sort of connected to what's happening in our country, in the U.S. in this moment. So, A friend of mine suggested that I listen to a podcast called Harsh Reality, which is the story of Miriam Rivera, who was a trans woman who was the star of an unconventional, let's say, reality show in, I think it was in the 90s or maybe even in in the early 2000s. So it's a story of a trans woman. It's really well done. I was afraid that it was going to be like cringy and problematic, but it's actually really well done. And while I was listening to that, I noticed a ton of inner transphobia really coming up. And it was just, of course, I like to consider myself an LGBTQ, well, I am and I'm a B in the LGBTQ rainbow, but also, you know, an advocate for people who are other letters of the rainbow. And so I just noticed it, right? And I want to notice it and work on it instead of shaming myself and feeling like a terrible person for having those thoughts. Also, I'd been watching Jonathan Van Ness's new show, Getting Curious. And if you haven't seen that yet, I mean, it's adorable because who doesn't love some JVN, but the episode specifically on non-binary was just, I was weeping at the end when I think it was four, three or four of them sitting at a table talking about their personal experiences and just the way that the world is shifting and changing. It was really beautiful. So it's interesting to me that this was going on in inside of me, something that I was experiencing And then the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, ordered state agencies to investigate gender-affirming care for trans kids as child abuse, which is just fucking stupid. Fuck that guy. That's ridiculous. That's abusive, right? I mean, it's obviously very transphobic. It's just straight-up hate. So that's happening. And I listened to a podcast called What a Day. That's a a daily news podcast that always gives me good snippets of what's going on in the world. And they compiled a bunch of resources for trans kids in Texas. So please, if you want to, you know, support folks who are actually championing trans kids rather than hurting them, then you can check out the resources in the show notes. Also, what's happening right now, speaking of the LGBTQ rainbow, there is the Don't Say Gay bill that passed in the Florida House of Representatives. And that bill would prevent educators from discussing anything related to queerness in schools, which, again, fucking stupid, like just ridiculousness. I hate it. And so we also have resources for this in the show notes, also compiled by that What A Day podcast. 
you know, this last one in Florida, I think of, I have a dear friend who I love so much. She and her wife live in Florida and have the most beautiful, sweet little girl I have ever met in my life. And just to think about if this bill you know, really becomes a law that this little girl won't be able to talk about her two mommies in class, you know, or the if the teacher even mentions anything that that would technically be legal. Like that is the biggest piece of bullshit I have ever heard when her family is just the sweetest family I've ever known. So please take a look in the show notes at some of these resources and see if there is any way that you would like to support actually helping the LGBTQ community. So now on to today's wonderful guest. Without further ado, I present to you Valerie Jenks. Val has spent nearly three decades working with couples and families in her Chicago practice, Prairie Family Therapy. Often described as a serial volunteer, she has a strong penchant for championing the underserved with decades of advocacy for people impacted by trauma, mental illness, and addiction. She also co-founded Laughing Matters in Chicago, a nonprofit dedicated to producing comedy events that support young performers in recovery. Her 2015 TEDx talk, How to Rewrite History, is a message for anyone who has witnessed or survived youth abuse. So please welcome and enjoy my conversation with the amazing Val Jenks. I cannot believe it, but Conversations with a Wounded Healer is turning five years old this month, and we're nearing our 200th episode. If you've been with me for a while, you know this podcast has been an instrumental part of my own healing journey. And now I'd love to hear how it's been a part of yours. For our 200th episode, I'd love to include your voice as well. Go to speak-to.us slash convos with a wounded healer and leave me up to a 60-second voicemail about how this podcast has impacted you. For our 200th episode in November, I'll include your message in our episode. That again is speak-to.us slash convos with a wounded healer. I can't wait to hear from you. Val! Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm hot right now, which is crazy given that it's like negative 20 degrees outside. How many layers do you have on? So many. And that's yeah. why. I'm like four. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm soaked. And I'm like, <laughs> my cheeks will not stop being red right now. But other than that, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm equally hot. I'm feeling like, do you remember that old I Love Lucy episode where they go into this huge contraption and only their head is showing yes. and it's to heat off all of the sweat? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They just needed to live in Chicago for a winter. Yeah, I have one of those actually. Really? I do. I do. My husband uses it. I use, yeah, there's a whole story, but who cares? But they're fun. Wow. I'm going to have to come over and try that. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> Well, I, I guess we should tell the rest of the world, let them in on our cool conversation. So do you want yes. to just share who you are and what you do? Oh my gosh. Which part of my life? <laughs> any part, uh, any part. So I'll start with you and I met uh, in the context of both of us being therapists in the Chicago area. And I was actually reminiscing this morning that the first time that I ever saw you, you were speaking at an event about improv. Was I? Yes. It was at Hugo's, I think. And oh. I, 
I remember the event because they served carrot cake like the size of my head. Oh, yes. And that was actually the first time that I met you. And then the second time was when we were going around and I was in the process of scaling back from my practice in Naperville and really focusing in a lot of self-care. There were a lot of things that had been happening in my personal life. And I'm like, I'm not really being the best therapist to anybody if I don't take care of myself first. Yep. And so you and I really had a connection at that point. Yeah. Ever since. Well, I remember, you know, as you were scaling back your practice and I was starting to ramp up mine, I remember that look in your eye of like, don't do it. Don't do it. And it's the same look that I give people now because it feels like trauma to be a group practice owner sometimes. You know, we have such lofty dreams and goals and and they're good dreams and they're good goals, but nobody has told us about what's required to run a business. Right. A corporation. Right. And be responsible for other people and how they support their family yep. and all of the things in between. Yep. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. I didn't I didn't really notice it at the time, but now that I think back, like, yeah, you had that look in your eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, and I need to tell the audience that I fucked up. This is the second time we're having a conversation, and it was a couple years ago, and you've had a lot of life happen since then. So I think actually now is probably <laughs> the right time, right, to release this. But I fucked up because the system that I was using, it lost interviews from time to time. And unfortunately, yours was one of them. But I don't think you fucked up at all. I think that was just the universe saying, you know what, put pause on this and get through some stuff and you're going to have a great conversation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, where do you want to start? Like, I just want you to share whatever is important for you and your development as just a a human who is also a therapist and a mom and an improver and or stand up actually not not improv stand up. I think I'd like to start with where we met when I was starting to close down my practice and just become a solo practitioner and you were starting to amp things up. I had inadvertently started this group practice. So I had started out solo. I was going to be solo, but I'm a serial volunteer. (laughs) So, you know, I'm doing this podcast because I can't say no. I know. I love you too, but yeah, right. I get it. (laughs) So I was supervising students at the Family Institute and a couple of those students literally stalked me for a year afterwards. Mm. So in Illinois, marriage and family therapists need to work for two years under the license of somebody else. And I think it's that way for a lot of mental health professions in Illinois. And they were having a really hard time finding somebody who would supervise specifically marriage and family therapy. So these two young people, fresh graduates, stalked me. They took me out for lunch and they said, look, we really have brought you here, not because the eggs are phenomenal, but because (laughs) we really need to get our hours. I like it. That's actually how I started my associate program. So they worked for me and then I started, it was working well and I was connecting them with, you know, the network of our friends in the field and they were learning marketing skills and they were learning business skills and it was going really well. So that's actually how I grew Prairie Family 
the first iteration. <laughs> but, you know, as we know, we all have another side. We've got our professional identity and then we've got our personal life. And in my personal life, everything was falling apart. Mm. My youngest child had developed a rare complication to mono. At that point, we didn't know what it was. She was top of her class, you know, just a great all-round kid. And her junior year in high school ended up getting mono and not recovering. Mm. So by the time her senior year came, she was in the hospital 11 times in three months. Oh my God. Nobody could give her a diagnosis. My relationship at that point with my partner who I had invested in this very large home and we were combining our practices. He was in the healthcare profession. I was in the mental health and we were combining our pra- practices into a wellness practice. He started to go AWOL mm. and everything was falling apart. And then I had hired somebody into the practice who I shouldn't have. And it was brought to my attention that she had been double billing an insurance company and ended up getting me in a lot of trouble, ended up getting her in a lot of trouble. And I thought, this is a lot of shit. I I need to just push pause on something because I can't take care of anything. And at that point, it was really pushing pause on work as the associates were getting licensed having them go out onto their own and not rehiring new people so that I could take care of my daughter. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it worked out well. I ended up breaking up with my partner. I'm really going to put this all out there, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) I love that realization because people forget because we're just talking and they're like, oh, wait, this is going to be... Yeah, I'm like, okay, am I okay with the world knowing this? Yeah, I'm totally fine with it. Right, okay, because we could edit things out. I'll tell you, what ended up happening is in the three years of going back and forth to Mayo Clinic from Chicago... My partner at the time had decided to not pay the mortgage to get involved with other people in my own bed while Mm -hmm. I was in another state. And I ended up finding out about all of this in a text message as he had moving trucks coming up to the house. I ended up getting left with a house in foreclosure, losing everything that I had worked for. I was 49 going on 50. So this was 10 years ago. This was at the time where the market had crashed in the housing market. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of people like me who had bought these jumbo houses with jumbo mortgages who were in trouble. There was no way that I was going to be able to afford to pay to get myself out of that situation. Well, my lawyer said, you know what, just sit tight, take care of the house. And at the end of the foreclosure, you may need to declare bankruptcy at that point. I thought it sounded like a really good idea, except it took four and a half years to make its way through court. Jeez. So during that time, there is no way in hell that I could have shown up responsibly as a group practice owner or a supervisor. There really was a need for me to push pause on that. I had a very skeleton caseload of clients that I had been working with for years and years who were familiar. I started to do a lot of home visits. I downsized my office I really focused on needing to keep in the forefront of my mind doing the best that I could and being aware that I couldn't do the best that I wanted. Mm, Yeah. 
Oh yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And that, I mean, what you're sharing, the details are vastly different, but that experience of feeling like I can't do anything. Like I kept getting the feedback when I was at my worst, people would tell me like, I don't know how you do what you do. And I was like, well, I'm dying. Like I'm literally dying. So I have a funny story (laughs) during all of this, right? So If you are somebody, I like to see myself as somebody who's got some resilience. And when you have resilience, one of the things that you know when you go through difficult times is that you will get through it and there will be an end to it and you're going to survive and hopefully you will have learned some lessons and and be a, a better, stronger person because of having gone through it. But when you're going through it, there's shame and there also is this weird, like, I don't want other people to know what I'm going through right now because I don't trust what you're going to do with that information. I know I'm going to get past this, but I don't trust that you're going to allow me to get past Mm -hmm. this. So coming out with having to go through a bankruptcy, having lost everything, you know, it's kind of like, oh my God, the marriage therapist, right? The expert in marriage gets divorced. Yeah. Right. And so just really being conscious of I'm going to be okay, but I don't know if you are. So during this time, I'm living in a 4,500 square foot house waiting for the foreclosure to go through. (laughs) And every month, if anybody's ever been through this, it's hell. Every month there's a court date, right? Hmm. And it's a court date for status. And so I had four years of monthly court dates where nothing was done. But you never know if the next month is the month where things are going to start happening and you'll be able to leave the house. So for four years, I'm living in this house. I'm like, the water heater went out. The basement flooded. The water heater went out. The furnace went out. And I'm like, I am not going to spend $5,000 getting a new furnace, getting a new water heater. What do I need to do? So I literally, for three years, was living in the master bedroom suite of this big house. I figured out if I kept the electricity on, let's also talk about the clinical depression that I (laughs) definitely was suffering at the time, right? Okay, because somehow in your mind, you're you're thinking, oh, I can do this. I've got camping skills, right? No. I finally know why I got sent to the Appalachian Mountains when I was 13 to learn camping skills because I don't need natural gas, right? (laughs) So I set things up where if I kept the electricity on, I could have my internet, I could have my lights, I could have electric heaters when it got cold out, and I had running water, so everything was fine. Wow. How did you shower, you may ask? That is exactly what I was thinking. I figured out that at that point in time, I remember saying to myself, Val, you are at the lowest that you have ever been in your life. Mm. Hopefully this is the lowest you will ever get to. But if you allow yourself to stay in this house, feeling how low you are, it's not going to end well. And so I kept my gym membership and I made myself get up at six o'clock every single morning. And you know what? I have too much integrity to just go to the gym to use their shower facilities. So I would do the same fucking thing. I really would. So I, I had my gym bag and I would pack it every night and six o'clock in the morning, I would go to the gym 
and I would work out for two hours. What ended up happening is not only did I get a nice shower and it got to sauna and everything else, I developed some of the best friends hmm. that to this day because we all were showing up at the gym for different reasons. Wow. It was this really serendipitous thing to have everything falling down at home, but then go to the gym and start interacting. We called ourselves the morning crew. We've all since moved on from the gym, but we're still connected on social media. That's so cool. And it was just really, yeah, it was a really actually a special time. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of what makes us resilient is the ability to have this like conscious observer online. And I love you talking about this part of you saying like, look, this is the worst that it's going to get, but it could get worse if you don't help yourself in some right. way. And you were able to find that strength to do just that. Right. Wow. So would you consider that the worst that it ever got? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and part of that, I've thought we live in a society where we value this stuff mm -hmm. so much. And for so many people, I mean, I know as a therapist, you've come into this as well. For so many people, losing the stuff is so devastating. And they've put so much weight on their identity being connected with the stuff mm -hmm. that when it's gone, they really don't feel any kind of meaning mm -hmm. for themselves or their life. Yeah. So I'm grateful that that was not what happened. Mm -hmm. Now that mm -hmm. I was able to actually step into my relationships and really form some new and lasting friends. Because I, I also had a lake house that I lost. I mean, I mm -hmm. lost it. Yeah. I, you know, I had worked my ass off and I was very proud of being a female business owner in a generation mm -hmm. of women that that was very rare mm -hmm. to be and then to have lost it all. It's like, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm really extremely appreciative of you being so honest and transparent on the show. And this is like, I feel like my mission as of late is to show the humanity of therapists, because right. especially during COVID, I mean, at the beginning, I was feeling and I know my staff were feeling so objectified by the urgency of the clients, right? Like everybody was hurting so much that they were you know, like clinging to us for things. And, and I started to just feel like I can't give you anything because I have nothing right now, you know? And so I think that sharing these stories of, I mean, everyday struggle, how many other therapists in the country, in the world have gone through this? Th thousands, I'm sure, right? And right. there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a bad therapist because you didn't keep your marriage together. It wasn't the right marriage for you, right? And I love when we can really be honest about the dirty underbelly and not be in shame about it. Right. So true. So true. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, and I, I make a joke about this, but I do think that my joke is actually grounded in reality. I'm half Asian, so I have these obsessive compulsive tendencies, <laughs> And I study the shit out of everything. One of my favorite things to do is to read journal art abstracts. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I started a Monday morning check-in called Mental Health Monday. Yeah, it was mentalhealthmonday.net, I think is the website. And I wrote an article on post-traumatic growth mm -hmm. and how, you know, in the middle of a crisis, we 
don't need to teach the skills to be resilient. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't tell a drowning victim how to do the backstroke, right? right? You save the drowning victim right. and then you give them swim lessons. So, you know, I see the pandemic as being very much like that for us, yeah. that as we've gone through this, we can't be focused on how to better ourselves or what skills am I missing? We just have to get through Yeah, and giving ourselves permission to actually publicly say, I have limits. Yes. It's so hard, but it's so necessary. Well, that's product of our capitalist culture, right? Is to not have limits and be able to continue to produce. And so, I mean, that's one of the biggest lessons from the pandemic that I've learned is I have to take care of myself and rest. I don't know what my husband is must be doing aerobics in the dining room right (laughs) above my head. So sorry, y'all, if you're hearing pounding, he fucking knows I'm down here. What is he doing? Um, So anyway, to be able to really tune into that internalized capitalist voice that says like when I'm resting, that's like, ah, 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 you should be doing something. You should be checking things off your to-do list. Well, in addition to capitalism, it's that whole misogynistic view of women doing it all. You know, we are tending the fires, raising the babies, building the huts, gathering the berries, and then we're looking good when it's that sizzling commercial from the 80s. Do you remember that? I can. I don't. Oh my gosh. I'm finding a post too that relates to this while you're, keep going. Swift Premium had this product, Sizzling, which was like this bacon product, right? And it was Hmm. all perfectly shaped bacons. And they had this woman in, I think, a suit. And she said, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, and never let you forget you're a man because I'm a woman. No. That's the (laughs) legacy. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the legacy as a female therapist. Yeah. You know, my older daughter is a psychologist now, and I'm so pleased that her generation is better at setting boundaries around Mm -hmm. those roles. Yeah. Okay. If I'm going to bring home bacon, you're going to bring home some bacon too. Mm hmm. Our first cohort of Wounded Healers virtual group is full. If you wanted to join but missed this opportunity, never fear. I'll be hosting the group again this summer and likely next year as well. Wounded Healers virtual group is an eight-week group for mental health professionals led by me. In this group, we will create a sacred container to support one another's healing, integrating spirituality, principles of the neuroaffective relational model, shame resilience, and liberation psychology. We'll use the chakra system as a frame for our weekly meetings. To be notified about the next cohort, go to tinyurl.com slash woundedhealerwaitlist. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash woundedhealerwaitlist. So this tweet that I had posted, Amy Ackenbach, I don't know who that is, but it's a brilliant quote. She said, what if the reason why we're all burned out is because of the productivity norms of our profession are based on white men whose wives took care of everything from cooking to copy editing for them a century ago? I saw that tweet. It was brilliant, brilliant, and so true. 
Right. I think, you know, you and I, we had a virtual lunch a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things we started talking about were the generational differences. Right. So you're like 18 years older than me. So are you, are you still Gen X though? I'm a baby boomer. Okay. So you're probably like the youngest boomer. I'm two years away from being the youngest boomer. Yeah. And I'm the youngest Gen X, which is, that's interesting. So we're kind of straddling generations. And because what I hear you talking about is a lot of what I witnessed with my mom. And my mom would have been, I think, 10 or 12 years older than you. but So she was an older boomer. Right. In the 80s, really, it was this idea that women could do it all. You can have your kids and you can have your career. And that really set y'all up for failure, which then impacted my generation because we're the latchkey kids going, where the fuck is my mom? Like, what am I supposed to do with this time after school? And, you know, one of the things that I was sharing with you at our virtual lunch was I'm really coming in and full disclosure, I dye my hair, right? And I dye my hair. I don't. It's naturally purple. <laughs> I, I <should>. JK. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I tried at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go natural. I'm going to go gray. And I'm like, I'm not ready to be marginalized. And yeah. that's really what it comes down to is I yeah. just feel like I still have so much to offer. And if I start to look old, I live in a society that's going to push me to the side. But what I shared with you is because my entire generation is continuing to dye their hair and, you know, go to CrossFit gyms and all these other things that are much better suited for people in their 30s and 40s than closer to 60, we actually are depriving our kids our daughters of the ability to have a voice of experience. Yeah. You know, a different female perspective from a different time and place. Right. Absolutely. And the interesting thing too is, so you and I have talked about working together, Yes. which as we're having this particular discussion about generations, me working with you gives me credibility because of your experience. And probably you working with me gives you that youth factor which I didn't even think about as we were talking about this. I didn't either. And that sucks, right? Not that we have to have it because you and I both have successful careers without each other, but that sucks that like, you know, society is going to view that as us giving that to each other when we both can stand on our own. And honestly, Sarah, when you said that, my initial reaction was actually to reject what you were saying because I'm like, no, I'm a peer. We're the same. And I'm like, fuck, there it is. But it's not, (laughs) right? I mean, I still get people who will say like, oh, Loyola lets you teach a class the way you look. Wow. And I'm sure, you know, wow. again, people like, yeah. even though our business is primarily, you know, women driven, still some people would look at us like, you're a business owner. Right. What? Right. And I'm actually clinically, I'm on a different, <laughs> I'm having a different experience where I used to really connect with high school kids and college kids. Mm. And now I'm having these kids come in and it's like, oh my God, this kid doesn't need another parent figure. Because that's, mm. I've kind of aged myself out of being the cool hip therapist. And that's interesting. If our society were more matriarchally driven, matriarchally, whatever, you know what I'm talking about, right. everyone, right. Um, then we could more appreciate the stages of life, right? Because as you're moving into this crone stage, and I'm in this like 
middle stage between where I feel invisible too, because I'm not young and sexy anymore, but I'm also not like full of all this like longevity of wisdom, right? Yeah. The divine feminine is rising. So she's coming, but we're just at this weird part of the universe where we don't get the benefit of it necessarily, (laughs) but we give it to each other. And that's, you know, and isn't that part of what you're creating here is an opportunity, a safe space to be able to have these conversations Mm -hmm. to provoke other people to think in these ways about these things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's the hope. Yeah. So that's a great segue into, would you consider yourself a healer? Ah, you know, you asked me that a couple of years ago and I, re- <laughs> I resisted it. And I was like, no, I'm not a healer. <laughs> Get over yourself now. Oh, it's so funny. And so whenever you have an initial reaction like that, you have to look at yourself like, where's this coming from? Why am I reacting this way? And I think for me, the label healer, brings up all of those power hierarchies that I have fought against. Yeah. Right? And so the idea of somebody healing means that somebody's unwell and just inherently implies a power hierarchy, but I don't think that's how you mean it, or that's not how I've come to understand you to mean it. But that was my initial reaction was, no, I'm not a healer. I'm equal, right? I'm the generation of equal. Well, but that's, I do, I do feel that way. And I think, you know, asking the same question over and over again helps me recognize just the, the incredible fallibility of language, right? And not just the English language. I'm guessing it sounds like most other languages have more words for things than we do. So I don't know. English is not getting it right. But, you know, we assume, like I assume that healer would mean the same thing to me as it means to you. And that's super important when we're working with our clients too. And I've really learned that directly from NARM, just this curiosity about, well, what does that mean to you? Just like the word addict, you know, I'll never forget working in the treatment centers and some people being really proud of calling themselves an addict because that was their badge of courage and going through adversity. And then some people, that word caused shame. Yeah, we can have a whole other conversation on that. So getting back to your question, do I consider myself a healer? I would say yes. Yay! And it's not a requirement. I just like, I I like it because I I love when we can, because we do have power and we shouldn't disavow the power, but we should know that we have power and know how to use it responsibly. And you know what? It's the recognition of the value of what I have to offer, right? So I do have life experience. I've got clinical experience. I have a big bag of tools because I tend to not throw things away when they're, they've been abused at some point in time. Right. No, seriously. When I was, I was just moving things out of a storage unit and I literally had 18 hammers. I'm like, what do you need with 18 hammers? So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A big bag of tools. That there's a there's a stand-up joke in there somewhere. I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> before I do want to talk about stand-up, but before we get to that, so how do you feel about the term wounded healer? You know, when you first brought that to me a couple of years ago, I was like, no way, I'm not wounded. Fuck yes. You know, we're all wounded. Okay. Yeah. That's just life. 
Right. Life is about wounds. Life is about suffering. And life is about what are the skills that we do need and the resources that we have around us to get through those to heal. Well, and that makes me wonder what has happened, and maybe it's not even in the past two years, but what is the shift between you're pushing away both these questions to now you reconsidering and, and seeing them in a different light? That's a great question. Honestly, I think the pandemic, the pandemic absolutely has had a lot mm-hmm. to do with it. It peeled back everything in life mm-hmm. that any of us were hiding behind, under, in, <laughs> and said, okay, here you are. And I also, through the pandemic, I've been doing a gratitude exercise. Mm -hmm. So Marty Seligman, a professor at University of Pennsylvania, he actually is one of the founders of positive psychology. Mm. And he has an exercise called Three Good Things, where every day you identify three things that you're grateful for, and you specify why you're grateful for that thing to anchor Mm. the gratitude. And I did it morning and evening, every single day of lockdown, and I've continued to do it. And quite honestly, it has had an impact on me that I didn't anticipate. I just am much Mm. more comfortable with myself. I'm less judgmental of myself. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about stand-up, because you're a stand-up comedian, Yes, actually, I kind of put that on the back burner. (laughs) When I was in the middle of losing everything, I'm living in this house with electricity only and cold water, showering at the gym. Nobody knows about this. Two things happen. I get invited to do a TED Talk. So I did a TED Talk in 2015. The dress that I'm wearing is a Vera Wang dress that was rented because I couldn't afford to buy new outfit for myself. So I'm literally, anytime I've watched that TED Talk, I think to myself, okay, you look and sound great, but nobody knew that you're living in this master bedroom suite in this huge house that's occupied by mice in all of the other rooms. And I took stand-up. I took stand-up as a way of, you know, I was interested in it and what quickly I found, it was very therapeutic because stand-up really is all about becoming an observer of life and finding Mm -hmm. it funny. So when you're writing jokes, you're literally looking for material everywhere you go. And there's some funny stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Like 18 hammers. Yeah, like 18 hammers. <laughs> I will be I, I will be working on that. The other thing is the the word pantaloons came into my mind and I'm like, that's a very funny word. I need it is a very funny word. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember going to you you did a show with it was people in recovery, right? Yes. Yeah, you did a stand-up show. And I remember it was probably right before lockdown, actually. Was it in January of 2020? I cast three years of shows. So I did one in 2018, 2019, and then we cast for 2020. Oh, okay. We were supposed to open the weekend of March 23rd. Oh, shit. Which was the weekend of the lockdown in Chicago. Got it. I started an organization with a couple other friends of ours called Laughing Matters in Chicago. And this came from me doing stand-up. 
and having to go to open mics, which were held in the back rooms of bars. And I'm meeting all these talented young people who are recently sober, who are having to go to the back room of bars to tell their four minutes of jokes to get better. And I thought, you know, there is no place for people who are really talented to go that's safe. And so I started this Laughing Matters in Chicago, cast some wonderful shows. We had four shows, four shows in 2018, different casts every single night, four shows in 2019. And I was prepared to do the same in 2020. Mm-hmm. And what's been really cool is I'm connected with all of them on social media and just watching the friendships that have mm. formed among them is super, super cool. It's like mm. there's such a large, supportive, funny comedy community in recovery right now. Mm. Do you think you'll do it again Absolutely. when the pandemic is? Oh, good. Well, I have those shows already cast. So I'll be reaching back oh, out great. to those, those people who were cast. And oh, good. the beginning of the pandemic, I was actually, I'm like, okay, we're all going to learn, you know, mental health first aid and I'm going to do all of this. And then I got COVID mm-hmm. on March 5th of 2020. And oh, wow. You got it right away. Oh, shit. I got it early before mm-hmm. the lockdown even. Mm-hmm. And then I I ended up being a long hauler and yeah. So all of that kind of got, again, pushed to the back burner because Mm -hmm. I can't commit to something that I don't know I'm going to be able to follow through with. Right. Yeah. Would you be comfortable sharing about the long haul COVID? Because I know that that's something that has been kind of mysterious for people. And I've I've not yet interviewed someone who had that experience. Well, gosh, what do you want to (laughs) know? What showed up for you? Like, when were you like, oh, shit, this is long haul COVID? Like, what was going on? Well, first of all, because I got sick so early, there was no tests. There were no tests available. So I'm super, super sick. And I'm talking to my doctor and they're like, well, maybe it's the flu. We'll give you Tamiflu. Well, Tamiflu actually made me violently ill. And I'm like, this isn't normal. My resting heart rate would go down into the 40s every single night. I lost the feeling in my hands and my feet because I had no circulation. I could not get warm. I was taking like scalding hot baths every single day, a couple times a day, just to warm myself and Mm. sleeping on heating pads and all kinds of things just to get through. My father, actually got it at the same time I did. We somehow, whether he believes he came in contact with somebody at his gym, I know that I was in contact with somebody in my office. So either way, we saw each other, gave it to each other. Because my dad was 90 at the time, he was able to get a test. Hmm. He came back positive and I came back presumptive positive. Mm -hmm. So After he was getting better, I was still having these lingering symptoms where I'd be incredibly tired. I couldn't walk Mm. upstairs. I couldn't catch my breath. That really was probably the most frightening because I had been training for the marathon and I had been running like four or five miles a day. So you're like, I'm fucking in shape. (laughs) I could not walk. Seriously, I couldn't walk downstairs to our garage. I couldn't walk a block. I mean, it was just, you know frightening and frustrating. Fortunately, where I get medical care is an integrative medical center. So they have MDs and functional medicine specialists and massage therapists and chiropractors. So I had a very good team Mm. 
and ended up donating my blood for science. So I was in like six different COVID studies and long hauler studies. I was like, okay, just take it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. They paid me 20 bucks every time I went in for six (laughs) miles. So (laughs) is that all I'm worth? In Chicago, that was worth the parking. Yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh my God. Parking in a latte. (laughs) Yeah. But interestingly, you know, what they found out is that one study Those of us who are long haulers never produce, we produced lots of antibodies to the initial infection, but we never had a T cell response. And if you remember, Mm. T cells are the killer cells. They're the memory cells that actually will manufacture antibodies if you come in contact with the virus Mm. again. So even though we were, we had this robust level of antibodies, we didn't have any memory cells. Mm. Until we got vaccinated. Oh. I hear a lot of people saying, oh, I've got immunity from natural infection. Well, I'm here to tell you that the study that I was in out of 500 of us, none of us had natural immunity from infection. None of us had long-term immunity. When we got the vaccine, we had an aberrantly elevated T-cell response. Hmm. Well, our immune system basically went, oh, shit, it's back and flooded everything at it. Wow. And then what has your experience been since you've been vaccinated? So I actually, after my first vaccine, I really felt better. Mm. And there are a lot of people with long haul COVID that are feeling that. What I've learned is they're really understanding COVID as a disease of inflammation, where Mm. it inflames our endothelial cells, which are the cells that line our blood vessels. Hmm. And so if you've got underlying inflammation, It's the people with underlying inflammation that tend to get COVID the worst, tend to get COVID to serious proportions. I had some minor heart damage. There was an area of my my left atrium that looks like it was deprived some blood supply. Fortunately Mm -hmm. for me, I've got access to good health care and I'm Mm -hmm. doing well and planning on running the marathon in October. Oh, yay. And Please, God, let shit be better by October, please. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Ooh. Well, thank you for sharing that experience because I'm I'm certain that there are listeners out there that have been going through this too. And just to know <laughs> that they're not alone will be helpful. Absolutely. And I want to tell you, let's go back to self-care and the therapist. Mm-hmm. I saw clients the entire time I had COVID. <sighs> because... We were on telehealth. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, I can work. And I would literally roll out of bed, make sure that I looked presentable in the from scene. here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And there were literally mm. times where I had sweat dripping. Oh. I was telling a girlfriend the other day that, you know, that Jethro Tull song, Snot Dripping Down My Nose. I had sweat dripping down my boobs. Okay. Yeah. I'm like sitting here and I'm sweating with fever. I look back at that and I'm like, what the fuck were you thinking? (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm sure you were thinking what all of us were thinking is that I can't take time off because my clients are suffering right now. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that piece that you were talking about earlier that really hit home for me that we've been called upon Mm -hmm. to do things and our passion for what we do is so great that oftentimes, at least for me, in that moment, it absolutely overrode my sensibilities. I should yeah. not have been 
sitting in my office seeing clients on Zoom. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us have in hindsight, recognized our impairment that we weren't able to see. And, you know, it's funny when our code of ethics, I don't know about yours, but ours says, you know, if you see something with somebody, like go to them directly and we think, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say anything. But you know what? I bet you if somebody would have said, honey, don't, that you would have been like, oh, thank you. You know? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And which is one of the reasons why I think you and I talked about it. It's so important if you're in private practice that you have a group of peers. Yeah. You have peers that are going to hold you accountable and support you. Right. Right. That can say, hey, this doesn't feel good. Are you okay? Exactly. Well, what would you like to leave listeners with? Is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to make sure you you sprinkle on top? Gosh, you know, I would go back to making the suggestion that people do that three good things exercise. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in learning more about it, you can Google Marty Seligman, three good things, and, and the exercise will come up and all the research around it because he really studied the crap out of it. And just practice that. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think... Uh, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about you, I'm like, boy, my initial reaction to things is digging my heels in and saying no right away. Um, <laughs> Same. I, I got I to look at that. <laughs> but the whole gratitude thing, when that first started coming out, I'm like, I don't want some Oprah bullshit. And then yeah. I started to do the research on what happens to our body physiology mm-hmm. and our brain when we engage in a daily practice of gratitude. Mm-hmm. I'm all about it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I love you. I love you too. Thank you so much for being back. Yeah, of course. And I'm sorry that it took so long, but I think you're right that this was, this was the right time. Yep. Well, appreciation beyond, and I'm excited that I get to spend uh, an hour with you tomorrow too. So I (laughs) I can't wait. Thanks so much to Val for being our amazing guest today. To learn more about Val Jenks, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.